God is so good to us. I want to throw up a scripture here to uh, start off with. It basically became my life verse when I was 19 years old. Um, this is the, the scripture the Lord gave me um, the evening of my dad's funeral. I was 19 and he had passed away suddenly and I was sitting alone. Um, many of you probably heard this already, but this is one of the, the emotions that I go through on this day. It's like, you know, just being uh, alive a lot longer than, than when I was with my earthly father. But I was, uh, the night of the funeral, I was really bumming and I was by myself and I was like, Lord, what do you want to speak to me? Just one of those times where you just, you're just crying out for God. Lord, I need something. This is not what I would choose for my life. And this is, what he, this is what he gave me. Eyes look down upon this. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Psalm 68, 5-6. That to me is my go-to verse when I think about who my father is. My heavenly father. He is a father to the fatherless. His heart is going out to the widow. He loves the destitute. He loves to take care of those who are compromised, who are disadvantaged, who are, are going without, in this case, a relationship that should be there. We should have fathers. We should have the best earthly fathers, but sometimes we don't. And sometimes they're taken, and sometimes you want to be a father, but God hasn't allowed that to happen like we see in the scriptures so often. But what this does, every time I read it, every time I go back, I get to say, this is my scripture. What a wonderful reality. Even this morning I was reading it. It came up on my version, And I already had this in my notes. I'm going to share on it. Um, because it, it's just, it's my scripture. It's the one I get to claim. I, my father is, is to me everything without my earthly father here. And even if my earthly father was still here, he would still be fulfilling this. Because in various ways we all let each other down. And earthly fathers are no exception, right? So wonderful to celebrate with you. I'd like us to all stand. And if you have either a father next to you or someone that you love that's in that fatherly role, or you just want to stand with us and just thank God for being a heavenly father like this, a father to the fatherless, why don't you join with me in prayer? And if you're nearby a dad and you know who he is, just give him a, a little hand on the shoulder. And just thank God for him while we pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the reality that you are a father to the fatherless. That you are a defender of the widow. Lord, that you set the solitary in families. Lord, we have a family of faith right here in our midst that we're with today. And Lord, you set us in the middle of it. And though we may go lacking in terms of our earthly existence, Lord, in terms of an earthly father or or maybe just not, they're not around, they should have been, or we're just waiting on you to allow us to be dads. Whatever the case is, Lord, we have thanksgiving in our hearts for you allowing us to be alive, for us to give us the dads we have. We thank you for them. We pray for these men in our midst even now that are assuming that role that you've given them divinely. May you empower them to be the best dad that they can possibly be in your image, that they would have your heart every day that they go to serve their families. Lord, we're thankful for them. And most of all, God, we can all rejoice in the fact that you are our Father and that your love for us is limitless. 
and that we could know your heart through your word. So today, God, we just want to say happy Father's Day to you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We have been going through a series now of language of the faith. I have the privilege today of, of talking about the word covenant. And what an amazing, easy uh, segue, if you will, from Father's Day into what we're talking about today. The covenant of God as, uh, as displayed in the scriptures. We're talking about covenant. Big word, uh, important word, no doubt. When we look at covenant as a... As a thing today, we're going to go over four things mainly, and, and the number one thing is we're going to look at an Old Testament example in Genesis that sets the theme. Uh, number two is we're going to describe the parties involved. Number three, we're going to bring um, an update that God gives us to the covenant system that he set up in the first place, and then look a little bit at the impact that covenant has on us uh, people that are made in God's image. Uh, not too long ago, Pastor Brian went over covenant in detail, and also just in, in looking at our different words that we're looking over in this series, or have been, there's been a variety of teachers that have been teaching different things, and it's a strategic, I guess, um, approach to understanding the scripture and the tenets of it, and the important concepts of it. Uh, there are reasons why we go over words like covenant. Because, guys, my prayer is that when you leave here today, that you'll be more entrenched in the love of God, and it would be such as a security blanket around you in the cold of this existence that you would be able to be sure, sure, and more sure that God loves you. Now, as we go into it, there's some patient gentlemen in the back that have Bibles in their hands. If anybody needs a Bible, we're going to be turning some scriptures. So if you need one, they're coming up. They'll give you one. And uh, let's get into it, shall we? So covenant, I want to describe it first. Uh, what it means in the Bible, as far as breaking the words down, there's, there's a Hebrew word and a Greek word. Berith is the Hebrew, and Greek is diatheke. Berith is about two, over 280 times in the Old Testament this word is used. And if you see there, basically the tenet of this is agreement. A covenant is an agreement. It's an alliance. It's a pledge between people and or God. So in the scriptures you have examples of God making a covenant with his people, the people being obedient or disobedient to that covenant, that relationship, that agreement, that pledge. And then we get into the New Testament, talking about Jesus, who you may be familiar with, as a bring, he's bringing in a new covenant. We'll look at that in a little bit. But the Greek word, diatheke, is covenant, testament. And check this out, a disposition. The last disposition the context here is which one makes of his earthly provisions or possessions rather after his death. So it's it's the connotation here is a testament or a will. But but it's an agreement. It's a partnership. It's an agreed apart between two parties or more potentially, but usually two parties to say we're entering in a relationship. Be it business, be it uh, a relationship of partnership. It could be between two kings saying I'm going to give you uh, cedar. You're going to give me X, Y, and Z goods, and we're going to be in partnership together. Or we're just going to live in peace together based on a covenant we agree. So the biblical theme overall, Old and New Testament, is this conditions of promised relationship between parties with consequences of not keeping it. 
there's a scripture we're going to start out with. So if you wouldn't uh, mind taking a look, well, before you do, take a look at some scriptures between God and man. We do have these new, uh, on Sundays, uh, we have this new form. If you have uh, it with you, there's a place for you to write notes down from the sermon, which we're happy to provide if you uh, want to pick those up when you come and have some note-taking ability there. I think it's important when we do hear the Word of God that we kind of chew on it. Sometimes just taking some notes really helps me uh, do that. So here's some scriptures you can write down, for example, in the Old Testament between God and man. Uh, we have Genesis 6, 18, and Genesis 9, 9 through 17, which is a description of Noah. You guys are, I'm sure, familiar with the story of Noah and the flood. God's promise, his covenant to his people there is to first bring Noah and his families in the ark to save them. And then with the flood and wiping out evil, wicked mankind who have turned their back in unison against God, he brings them through the flood and he makes a covenant with their family and demonstrates it by a view they'll see often. Related to rain, which took out people, which is, you guys know what that is, right? When you see the what? The rainbow. You'll be reminded of what? God's promise, his covenant, his agreement with his people that he will not do that again. He will have mercy on the wicked and uh, they will be taken care of. Then on in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, assorted scriptures there, a man named Abram, who is the father of faith, God lengthens his name while he's describing the covenant with him. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abram. And in the process, I'm even going to change your name to demonstrate that. So you're always reminded of my promise to you, which was lineage, lots of kids, lots of heirs, if you will, lots of people down his family line, even though he was old and his wife was barren. You guys know that story. And he says, I'm going to give you land. Your people are going to occupy it. I'm going to be faithful to you as your God, and you're going to be my people. So that's what you get out of those chapters. Exodus 2 and 6, uh, the people are in Egypt, and God says, I remember, we're just summarizing these things, obviously, we're going to get into detail in a sec. Exodus 2 and 6, I remember my people, they're enslaved in Egypt. I'm going to remember my covenant, God says, and he's going to rescue those people, which is a theme throughout the scriptures, of being brought out of slavery into freedom. And then Exodus 24, 8, uh, Moses talks with, the, with God, and, and God has a message for the people through him similar to that. So understanding covenant, um, starting with our first thing for this morning, our first of four parts, is looking at an Old Testament example, one of these we just listed in Genesis that sets the theme. So if you would, in your Bibles, if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 15, please, we'll be looking at this interesting, interesting story. covenant in the Old Testament. So this is, this is Abram that we're going to be reading about. Really fascinating story. Um, well known, but there's certain things in here that I think really illuminates the whole definition of covenant and why it's so important that we know God's version of covenant like no other. So in Genesis 15, you want to follow along, uh, verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, in a vision. So when we have a vision happening, we know that God's miraculously illuminating a, a truth to a person while he's awake. And it says, Fear not, Abram. I, God, Jehovah God, am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Some translations say, I'm your shield. I'm your very great reward. 
God saying that about himself. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. See, a couple chapters before, which ends up being about a couple decades in time, God had promised Abram to have children as part of his covenant. Um, but here, Abram's taking a, you know, inventory. He's like, God, to this point, I haven't seen it come to fruition like you promised. So he asks, him, asks God a question in response to this vision. He says, oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? This, this hasn't changed. My life condition hasn't changed. And it says, and the heir of my house is some other unrelated person, Eliezer of Damascus. Verse 3, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This was God's response. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now, they're in their 90s, right? He and his wife, Sarah. And so for Abram to hear this from God, uh, for him to process it in, in real life, if you will, is to say, this is going to have to be a miracle, you know? Um, I'm old. My wife is very old. She's way beyond childbearing years. We all know what that means. And yet, God's saying, don't worry, Abram. Don't worry. And this is what he does. Check this out. It says in verse 5, and he brought him outside, unobstructed outside at night, and he says, look towards heaven and number the stars, if you're able to. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, some, that's a concept that's taken in the New Testament and stretched out and examined a little bit, what it means to be counted as righteousness in believing God. But this sets the stage for all of our walks with God, that it should be faith that, that really rules the day, that we would hear God's promises, right, and that we would simply believe them, even when God calls us to believe something that in the present doesn't look very good doesn't look, yeah, exactly, doesn't look possible. So God does this by Abraham. He said, I want you to take a look at this canopy. Have you guys been camping recently or been in a place where you have no light pollution whatsoever? We're talking about a canopy of stars that are limitless. If you go down to, for example, uh, uh, Griffith Observatory, you guys have been down there in L.A., fantastic display. It takes one little section. In fact, um, uh, Albert Einstein takes his thumb and he points it up to the heavens and he blocks out a certain part of the sky of the canopy of stars with that thumb. Okay, so we're talking about one little piece, one little sliver, if you will, of the whole expanse, which Abram can see very clearly. And, and Albert Einstein at the Griffiths Observatory has him sitting on a bench, a sculpture of him, and he's doing this. And then on the wall in the back, have you guys seen this? On the wall in the back, you've got to go check this out. It's totally worship-inspiring. Because on this huge expanse of wall, it must be 40 feet high, and I don't even know how long, it's got that blocked out from his thumb uh, it, you know, through a uh, telescope, magnified, magnified, and more magnified. See, when you go up to this big wall, you're just struck with the fact that there are so many stars, so many stars that, that cover this little piece of God's canopy. And he says, Abram, I want you to go outside, and I want to do a little object lesson in regards to faith and believing and trusting in me. When I say something, it will come to pass. And not only that, but it's going to blow your mind on how much I'm going to fulfill it. And he takes him out and he says, this is how your offspring is going to be. Now, we all have different things that God takes us to believe that are kind of on the outskirts of sanity. For me, it was that scripture. Because 
Not only would I want to know at 19 years of, of age, God, will you take care of me? But moreover, I was concerned with my mom. Lord, who's going to take care of my mom? How are you going to take care? She doesn't have a full-time job. I'm at school. That costs a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For me, I just didn't see how he was going to work this out. But when God gives you a scripture like that, or when he takes you outside and tells you to look at the stars, no matter what he says, it's best for us to what? Just take him at his word. Just take him at his word. Sometimes we get so complicated in our walks with God that we forget there's simplicity here of his promise. I will never leave you or forsake you is right up there. And sometimes we're crying out, right? God, where are you? God's response is simply, just wait. Just wait on me. Seek my face. I'm with you. I've promised it. It will come to pass. I will see you through this. And lo and behold, my mom goes through this whole uh, court case, as it turns out. And I'm at Cal Poly as a student in the dorms just saying, God, I don't know. I'd really love to stay here. But I know I can't afford to stay here. My mom can't afford to stay here you got to do something. And we were involved in this, this case. I won't go into the details, but basically what had happened was, miraculously, do you know that this day my mom still gets a monthly check from, uh, that takes care of her and her needs? To this day, she's in her 80s now. And I still get caught in that reality that this is a fulfilled promise of God. He's the defender of the widow. And so sometimes we just like, gosh, could I project? Let's see, that was, I was 19 then. I'm in my 20s, right? <laughs> now, so that was about less than a decade. Not that hard. I can do math. Now, I'm in my later 40s. Some of you guys are all, that's a young whippersnapper right there. Some of you are all, I can't believe he's not dead already. Um, that was a horrible joke. Why did I just say that? Because you guys are young. Young at heart. Uh, what was I talking about? So, Oh, just looking at, at how God's taking care of my mom and fulfillment of that scripture to me on the day of my dad's funeral when my biggest concern was not for myself but for her and her well-being. And Lord, I'm going to work hard to honor her and to take care of her as much as you allow me to do that. But I still want to see your hand in this. And I'm still amazed, still amazed. Until she dies, she's taken care of financially. And that to me is just like, God, give my right arm for that to be true. Please, Lord. And he's like, just take a look. Take a look, Abram. Take a look up. Because this is what I'm going to do. This is all about trusting God, face value for his word. You guys, who struggles in here to do that sometimes? Yeah. Just the simple truth as revealed in the word of God is sometimes the most difficult to believe him in. But when you do, when you do, you take God's hand that he extends towards you and you simply grip it. And you realize it's not how hard I'm gripping his hand that's important here. It's that his hand completely envelops my hand and holds it securely. That's when you get into faith to say, even when things look horrible, or when Abram turns to his wife and goes, I don't know how he's going to bring a child, but he told me to go look at the stars, and I just got to believe him. He's going to do something. I don't, I don't know what it is. He's going to do something. He's always at work, you guys. Always. Always, always, always. And God counts his faith, not his works, his faith as righteousness. You believe God, God does a miracle. And he said to him, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out 
from Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So he's talking about his descendants, and he's also now talking about land. And he said, now Abram in his honesty goes back, he says, God, okay, I got that. How, how am I to know that I should possess it? And here goes our example into what bringing this into covenant. This is really vital that we understand these things. In verse 9, God says to him, Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so if you're Abram, you're sitting there going, okay, I don't know what this has to do with anything. Maybe it has to do with the land and its fruit. But I'm going to trust God. So, so he said he brought him all these. In verse 10, it says he, he brought all these to God. And, he's, and, then, and then he ends up having him cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. And, and he didn't cut the birds in half. They're probably too small. He just set them as he did with the other animals, it would appear. And it says 11 in the birds. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So it's, it's this process that's taking some time, apparently, to, to bring the animal to, uh, to go through cutting it in half, which is not uh, a non-messy uh, exercise, of course. He sets the birds up, and it says he cuts them in half, and he laid the half over against each other. So in other words, there's a separation of the animals. We'll get into why in just a second. But it's, it's a process, and it says it took long enough for birds of prey to come and, and kind of try and get in part of the meal, right? And Abram's shooing them off. It's like, God, what in the world? Why would you have this happen? Guys, this is vital. Check this out, what happens. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. What is God talking about there? He's talking about the what? Talking about the Exodus, right? Talking about in Egypt as slaves. So he's prophesying here. And it says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here to the fourth generation. Now for there to be a people of Abram in slavery and to come back for him to die at a good old age, his generation to the fourth, it says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Obviously God's saying, what I'm going to do is obviously going to happen for you to have that many people coming back here. You know that something miraculous is going to happen. He's again reinforcing his promises to Abram being sure and true. And he's given him a little glimpse into what's going to happen. It says in 17, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So there's a couple things we really need to point out here that sets the tone and sets the stage for this important concept of covenant. Is, is Abraham's told, cut the pieces, lie them out, lay them out on the ground. Don't cut the birds. Just set them either side. And the idea here is that as we enter, whether people or God and man, whomever, what is the image telling us? If there's animals here, we, we sacrifice those animals. They die. They're cut in half. And, and it's a bloody scene that sets what? An aisle. Imagine this aisle right here. Better yet, imagine an aisle when... when um, for any big event, like a wedding or something. 
you have this aisle made by these animal carcasses cut in half. And what you're saying is, as you grab the person's hand, or as you're going to walk through, you're going to walk through this aisle that's made by the sacrifice. In other words, it's reminding you, as you go through this willingly, that if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, may I be as these animals in half. In other words, it's something that you take so seriously that you're saying, I, I'm not going to miss it. I can't accidentally walk through this scene stepping over blood of animals that are cut in two that I'm having to chase uh, wild uh, birds off of. I'm not going to miss the point here that this is serious business that I'm entering into, am I? In fact, it's so serious that it's actually death that is as the vivid reminder of how important keeping my part of this covenant is. May I be like these animals if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. Now, God sets this up for Abram to do. Abram is going by faith on this whole exercise, right? He isn't like, I don't, I don't think, I can't imagine Abram having all this set in his mind like, oh, okay, I get it. I'm going to go get a heifer. I'm going to get some birds. I'm going to set them out, and we're going to see the severity of what, I, what it means if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, if you will. I don't know if he had that all. I, I would imagine he's, he's going by faith at each step that he's doing, and, and, he, and he's actually going to basically have his mind blown on the consequences here uh, of what God's really doing. What is God doing? Look in verse chapter, or in uh, this chapter, look in um, 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, what? What went through this aisle of, uh, made by these carcasses and blood? Smoking fire pot, right? And a flaming torch passed between the pieces. What is that a symbolic of? Think, of? think of the book of Exodus. What did Moses come upon in the desert? Burning bush. What did that, what was in the burning bush? God revealing himself through that. The, the bush wasn't being uh, consumed, but God was showing up in that way, demonstrating, I am powerful. I am as fire. I am, I am a consuming fire. And here we see a smoking pot. We see a flaming torch go through the pieces. Where's Abram? He's, he's, I don't know. Is he still asleep? Is he awake? What, what's going on? I'm not sure. But what I can tell you is it says when the sun had gone down, it was, bar- it was dark, the smoky fire pot and the flaming torch passed between the pieces. It does not say that Abram went through too, does it? It doesn't say. Now, I don't know. Maybe you can correct me on this. My... Uh, what, what I've been studying recently is this. What is God saying here? Abram, I'm going through the pieces. I'm taking this seriously unto death. You're not even going through it. I'm going through for both of us. The glory, the Shekinah glory, the power of God through those pieces, symbolic of how serious God is. When He says something shall be in a covenant relationship, how serious He is to take that to the hilt and fulfilling it. You get where we're going? That's covenant in the Bible. Now you're already, you, you're already making connections, aren't you? Where are we going with this? Stay tuned here. Descriptions of the parties involved. Second part. Descriptions of the party involved. Just think for a second. Describe God in your mind right now. Just describe Him. What, what words come to mind about God, His character, his personhood, his faithfulness. What, what comes to mind? Throw out some stuff. Loving. Patient. Very patient. Power. 
power, absolutely. The flaming torch is a good reminder of that. Faithful, Faithful indeed. Wise. Very wise. Who can know his thoughts? His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways above our ways. Some, some other, other things. Incredibly just. Justice with mercy. Perfect combination. Perfect marriage of those things. Those characteristics. A couple more. Love, yes, absolutely, and trust, trustworthy, trustworthiness, trustworthiness. Selfless, awesome, awesome. Now, man, how about this? How about this? Us. Now, if we say all the same things, the Bible declares, if we declare we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth isn't in us. No, all those things I'm sure we would say about each one of us. Now, when it comes to describing those on seating either side of us, then we, our list comes a little bit different. <laughs> so obviously you have parties involved. When God's setting this covenant up, he's setting it up with people who fall very short. Very short. I want to give you an idea of what that looks like. Look in, turn over more in the, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament to 2 Kings Chapter 17. I want to give you a description as God sees his people who he's entered in this covenant, these covenants with. And I want to give you an idea of, of this description. It's, 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 it blows the mind. I've been reading through the Kings, uh, through 1st and 2nd Samuel, through I just finished 1st and 2nd Kings. I'm going into Chronicles and, and rereading these books. And I got to tell you, whenever you go through those books of the Bible, maybe. Excuse me, some of you who have been reading the scriptures through us with the year of biblical, excuse me, um, year of biblical literacy, you, you've re- read these recently. And it, reading over the kings of Israel, you know, they had no righteous king. You guys know that? Of all the leaders of the northern kingdom of Israel, Israel being divided due to civil war um, into two, the northern kingdom uh, never had a righteous king. The southern kingdom, Judah, had some sprinkled in there for sure. But it's interesting how you could have a righteous king and then they have a son and the son's totally wicked. Like it just says they've forsaken God. And then they'll have a son and God will raise up somebody who's leading the people in righteousness. It's amazing. It's like this roller coaster. But you're left with a, with a description like this at times and you're like wondering why God ever intended to be in a covenant with anyone for that matter. In uh, chapter 17, verse 34, this is out of the New King James, it says, To this day, this is a description of the people, to this day they continue practicing their former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances, or the law uh, and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, his own people. That literally means governed by God. Listen to this description as it continues. Verse 35, with whom the Lord had made a covenant, okay, this is whom he made the covenant with, and charged them, saying, you shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them, but the Lord, Jehovah God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, again, according to what? His covenant in Exodus, right? With great power and outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe. How long? It says forever. You shall not fear other gods. 
and the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. Verse 40. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet serve their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this very day. Uh, this is in the middle of some pretty tragic circumstances of people forsaking the one true God and living after uh, false gods. To the point of this, you guys, it was pretty much encapsulated in this example. They were, got to the point where they were offering, just like their foreign gods around them, they were offering their children in ritual sacrifice unto those false gods. Killing their own children to worship false gods. That's the depravity. That's the level by which they found themselves giving themselves over to those that they should never give themselves over to, given the fact that God gave them pretty, very clear ordinances, laws, and statutes to say, I have made a covenant with you. Your role with me is to remain faithful to me and me alone. Me alone. That's very convicting for us as we sit in our seats right now, right? Anybody resonate with the fact that your heart is wayward? That your heart gravitates towards things which are not of God, that are counterfeit, that are worth nothing in the end? And, and we, we find ourselves chasing after, even though we've been encapsulated by the love of Christ at times, you can just feel your desires going wayward. Well, imagine just taking off all the conviction and just running towards it. This is where the people of Israel were. And he's basically saying to them, I made a covenant with you. I would be your God, you would be my people. So the question is really a good one. Why would God choose a party to enter into a covenant with that he knows will not hold up their part? I don't know. Do you know? Do you know why God loves you? Do you, know, do you really know why God? I know how he's loved me, but why? Why does he love me? Why does he love Israel? Why was he patient with them? Why is he patient with me? You guys know that, uh, that hymn, we, sing it, we just sang it, I think maybe last week, prone to wander, God, prone to, uh, uh, Lord, I feel it, prone to wander from the God I love, right? That, that in essence is a description of my heart all the time. It's a continuous battle. But then what is there to battle that? That sense of shame, that sense of like, well, you must be done with me, that sense of like, uh, you know, God, I, I, I wish you didn't know the intents of my heart like you do because I feel really ashamed at this moment. All those things are, are battled against with what? Coming back to God, you made the covenant in the first place. Knowing, knowing my struggles, knowing my shame, knowing my losses, knowing my battles that I came up short against. You knew all that. Before I was a believer and now after I'm a believer. Before I trusted in you, before I took your hand, before you enveloped me in your love, and after, as I'm walking with you, when I go wayward, when I choose sin, when I choose selfishness, when I go against your commandments, your laws, your ordinances, you still, what? You encourage me through the fact that you've made a covenant willingly with me. Even without me, you went and took right that path, right down the aisle, even without me knowing what, that I would be faithless when it came to fulfilling it. That's true for all of us in this room. It's true for humanity. That's why none of us can earn our favor with God at any point. 
God never expected that to be the case, right? Even giving the law, even saying to his people, I want you to be faithful to my word. He knew it was, gonna, it was not going to happen. You can go back to the Garden of Eden, Eden and read about that being the case. Number three, God brings an update. So just going through this Bible story through the scriptures, I want to read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. At, at one point uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the timeline of, the, of his people, Israel, God comes through his prophet Jeremiah and he says something very significant. We're going to wrap this up with looking at Jesus and how this was fulfilled. But in 31, verse 31 through 34, God says, he tells his wayward people, through the prophet Jeremiah, by, by, by whom no one listened to, by the way. Jeremiah got no audience to listen to him. See, verse 31, he says, through the word of God, who are turning their back on his own prophet as he says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, interesting, he says, I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Blessing, blessing, blessing. God's saying, I know the situation. I know my people are wayward. I know everything has, has been thrown away by them, forsaking me, their husband, their true husband. As my bride, they have, they have taken the covenant and broken it. They deserve death. They deserve judgment. They deserve wrath. They deserve to be cut in half like those animals by which they tread. They deserve all that, but he's saying, I have great news. There's going to be a new covenant. It's coming. And, and it's not so much that God needs a new covenant. Who needs a new covenant? We do. Did you get that? God doesn't need a new covenant. He never broke the old one. We need the new covenant. Why? Because we broke it all the time. So what does God do? Well, he says, I have this situation where it's payable upon death if you forsake my covenant. You guys have forsaken my covenant. What is there to do? We're going to make a plan. Jesus comes and he meets with his disciples in the upper room. You guys know the story, right? Turn in your Bibles. Luke 22. This is amazing. As Jesus, God incarnate, comes to his children. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been setting people free that were possessed by demons. He's been allowing people to follow him by the masses. He's been feeding them. He's been training up his disciples. He's been doing all these things, demonstrating the fact that God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widow. He's touched the leper. He's done this, that, and the other to say, I am the one who's been prophesied. I am the one bringing this new time for the people. And in verse 14 of chapter 22, he says, when the hours, it records, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. This is at the crux of just prior to him going to the cross. And it says, he said to them, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, what did the Passover involve? It involved the sacrificial lamb that would die, that the blood would be spilled, 
that it would be spread over the doorposts, right? And then God in his wrath would pass over the houses that had put their, the blood upon, of the lamb upon their doorposts, their thresholds. And it says, for I say to you, Jesus says, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I'm going to fulfill this, guys. I'm going to fulfill this. And it's going to be for the kingdom of God. It's going to be fulfilled. In 17, he says, he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's almost like you could just picture him taking the unleavened bread that would be stiff and breaking it. Breaking it in what? Certain teachers I was listening to, breaking it in half. This is my body. This is my body. I'm going to go right through it. I'm going to take on the cross. And this, and this, this death scene of blood that I'm going to walk through the fire of God. I could consume everyone, but I'm not going to. I'm going to walk through it. It's going to be my own blood. He's going to celebrate the Passover and he's talking about a new covenant. He says he broke the bread. He broke the bread. He says, this is my body which is given for you. And he says, likewise, he took the cup after supper, part of the Passover service. This is the cup of what? The new covenant. This is the cup. What did the cup symbolize? The blood. What did the blood bring? Mercy. And forgiveness for what? Breaking the covenant. I'm, I'm going to pour out my blood. Because justice is required. We talked about justice of God. It's required. I can't just turn a blind eye to sin. I can't just say the guilty go free and have no consequence for sin. I am now unjust. I'm like the judge on the bench who says, you killed 20 people, see you later, have a good life. Everybody would say, that judge is unrighteous. He needs to be removed. That's not okay. Just as God says, I'm not going to be unjust. I'm going to punish sin. But what's going to happen? This cup, Jesus says, in the new covenant, the new relationship is this. We're going to walk through, but it's over my own blood. It's with my body broken in two for you. So you can see that I'm serious unto death for this. And I will be in just a short amount of time. I'll be on the cross and I'll be dying because you guys broke the covenant. But here's the good news. What happens to those that are saved from their own sin? Is the new covenant says, I will be your people. Or, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will write it on your heart. You will know me. You will know me, and I will be your God. As you take my hand, and we walk over my blood together, and you receive my free gift of righteousness. When you believe me, what? Just like Abraham. It's credited to you as righteousness. Paul goes further to say, it's not by works that we've been saved, right? You guys remember that scripture? It's not by works. It's through faith, right? It also in the book of Hebrews talks about God in the Son, Jesus Christ, being our high priest, who is the purveyor of a new covenant. And guess what? We talked about in the beginning where, where the, the New Testament talks about it being a, a will and testament payable upon death. Whose death allowed us to be pardoned? But Christ. And it says in Hebrews, it talks about once he died, 
He fulfilled the heavenly requirements. And now we're able to enter into that heavenly place ourselves. Unrighteous people made righteous through faith in the finished work of Christ. The very steps we take over are ones that are mercifully supported by the blood of Christ. And so every time you feel defeated, and every time this goes into four, uh, skipping to, to point four, un- impact on us people, every time we, we, we struggle with the, with the reality of how wayward our hearts can be, the, the main fuel that I've grown and learned to apply to my own weakness, my own strength, being lacking, my own tendency towards waywardness, my own failures as a father to my own sons. Every time I battle with that, I have to go back to the Word of God saying, I have made a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you. So your sins could be forgiven. And once they are forgiven, then you, got, you just come back to your Father who has your hand. And you keep saying, Lord, change me. Lord, make me more like Jesus. Keep going, keep going, because the reality is I've already saved you. You're coming back, not to have your whole body uh, washed, if you will, but just your feet. Just keep coming. Just keep confessing. I'll cleanse you of all sin. But guess what? It's all because I'm faithful to my covenant that I've made with you. Not your faithfulness. God, could, could, could God ever rely on us to be faithful to our part of the deal, guys? Could God ever? He says he knows man. He knows us well enough, right? So let's, let's get past the trying to earn God's favor and let's just receive it through faith. And then what happens? When you get humbled, you guys, when you get humbled in the reality of God's love, being so serious to Him that He would die in our stead on the cross of Christ, your heart gets melted and you start living for Him. See, it comes in the acknowledgement and it comes in the humbling and it comes in the transformation where we're obedient because of His love, not because we're afraid or trying to earn favor with Him. See the difference? There's a whole world out there that's trying to earn their favor of whomever they put in God's seat. They're trying to do good works. They're trying to do good things. That's true for us too if, we don't, if we're not careful of why we do what we do. The impact on us as people of God is that we simply say, yes, Lord, your will be done. I'm going to believe you even when it's crazy. When you take me out in the canopy, I'm going to believe you when you say what you say. I want to trust that it is true. I'm going to trust in the finished work of Christ that, that brought in a new covenant. And I'm going to walk because of the joy in my heart, not because of the guilt I'm trying to pay some debt off that I can never pay. Says, so oh, how happy is the man whose sin is covered, whose sin is forgiven. That's what propels me to obedience. Are you with me, guys? That's what propels us to be a community of people that loves and cares for one another, who loves the world, who still needs to come to that place of submission to Christ. So you can't go through that walk with Jesus and say, okay, I'm going to take your hand, you're going to envelop my hand, I'm going to walk through, and then once you get through the other side and say, okay, got it, I got it, God, I got it from here. I'm just going to choose my own way, I'm going to make up my own rules, I'm going to do whatever I want. You can't do that, right? It doesn't make sense because he's done all the work to just say, I'm going to not only save you, but I'm going to bless you as you're obedient to me. It's just a natural byproduct of being in step with God. So all that to say, what's the impact on us people? Is we should have more joy than anybody else, right? We should have the, Father, the Father's Day of all Father's Day every single day. And we just say, Lord, you're faithful. I'm not. Thank you for recognizing that and paving a way so that I could be loved by you and in a relationship with you. Not just now, but forever. And when we see him face to face, you guys, yeah, it's going to be a frightful sight. Seeing God throughout the scripture is a frightful sight. Why? Because there's so much power there. But the same token, he's going to touch you. He's going to say, you're mine. You're mine. I, I, I fulfilled the covenant. Jesus is going to come 
and he's going to say, I am your, your, your covenant keeper. I, I'm, the, I'm the mediator. I'm the one who's faithful unto God when you couldn't be. And, and I lay down my life so that you would know that, and you're here with me, and we're going to be here forever together and with all the saints. What a glorious truth. Glorious truth? Yes. Glorious truth. Thank you, Jesus.